Okay, I'm going to talk about the brain and what some of the functions that our brains are especially good at. Uh, but before I do that, let me acknowledge some collaborators. Uh, Liz Seckel, who's here in the audience, grad students, postdocs, yours truly. Some of you may have guessed that this slide was supplied to me by Liz Seckel about an hour ago. <laughs> now, there are many ways of studying them, but it's made up of neurons and... Uh, Many ways of studying the brain. One way is single unit neurophysiology. You put an electrode in the brain, eavesdrop on the activity of individual nerve cells, find out what's the optimum stimulus in the external world that can optimally activate the cell, and study the circuitry by doing that. Another technique is brain imaging, sort of looking at what part of the brain lights up when you perform a particular action, which makes the media sort of voyeuristic phrenology. Third approach, the one we use extensively, is the lesion approach. When the small part of the brain is damaged, what you often get is a highly selective loss of a specific function rather than an across-the-board blunting of your mind or reduction of all your cognitive capacities. That gives you some confidence in asserting that that region of the brain is involved in mediating that function. So I'll give you an example. We've talked about various functions of the human brain, which we may be especially good at. Anyway, there's a long list. You heard about all the abilities. But one, one ability that I'm fond of, and we heard about a little bit from Dan Dennett, was humor and laughter. And I'll tell you about a patient I saw in Velour in India over 25 years ago. This patient had pain in symbolia, that is some lesion in his pain pathways in the brain, the thalamus, or somewhere, we don't know. And I would poke him with a needle as part of a routine neurological exam. And every time I poked him with a needle, he would start giggling uncontrollably. So I'd poke him and say, ha, ha, ha. Poke him. Each time I poke him, he'd start laughing uncontrollably. I asked him, does it feel funny? He said, yes, yes, it's painful, but it also feels incredibly funny instead of feeling aversive. Right? So I started thinking about this. Why would a human being laugh at the face of pain? It's the ultimate paradox. Then I started asking, why does anybody laugh for anything? An ethologist watching all of you guys here would notice that every now and then you pause what you're doing, shake your head and say, hey, 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 and make this funny stereotype vocalization. The question is, why do we all do this? It's undoubtedly a universal trait, human trait, because every culture, every society, every civilization, every tribe, every country has some form of laughter or humor, except Germans. <laughs> um, but anyway, not, notwithstanding that point, you assume it's hardwired into the human brain. And the question is, why is it that? This, this is raised by Dan Dennett and argued eloquently. That for the evolutionary reasons that humor might have emerged. I have a slightly different take on it, very closely related to Dennett's. If you look at all laughter and humor, it has the following structure. You take a person, let's take slapstick, for example. You take a person along a garden path of expectation, building up a story. At the very end, you introduce a twist that entails a complete reinterpretation of all the preceding facts, what we call the punchline. Right? But that's not enough. The twist has to be inconsequential. For example, if you have a scientific theory being built up by a scientist over his lifetime, and you come and disprove it suddenly, sudden twist entailing a complete... He's not going to find it funny. <laughs> I, I've tried it many times. It doesn't work. <laughs> so, it has to be... To give you an example from slapstick comedy, this portly gentleman is walking along the street, slips on a banana peel and falls down. His head hits the pavement, and blood starts spilling out. You don't start laughing will call the ambulance, unless you're really perverse. But if he, if he gets up, looks around him, wipes off the banana, you might start laughing. That's the basis of slapstick comedy. 
What's the key difference between the two? In both cases, there's an expectation set up. This portly gentleman is going to reach his destination. In both cases, the guy falls down, slips in a banana peel. In the first case, he really hurts himself. You sort of call for help. You call the ambulance. You shout. You're going to reach out, reach out to help and run towards him. In the second case, you know that the inconsequence is wiping off the banana from his head. So you start making this vocalization to announce to your peer, your group, that this, there's no, this is a false alarm. In other words, laughter is nature's false alarm signal. This is the idea that was proposed in the book. Now, how do I know it's done? Let's go back to this patient. What's gone wrong in this patient? When we did a CT, we found the problem was in the insula, in both sides of the brain, insular cortex. The insular cortex is involved in receiving pain signals and, and responsible for the sensation of pain as opposed to the aversive quality of pain. From there, the message gets sent eventually to, after relay to the anterior cingulate, which is involved in the aversive quality, the, the, pain, the agony of pain is experienced in the vicinity of the anterior cingulate. In this chap, the insula itself may have been preserved, but the wire that goes from the insula to the anterior cingulate might have been damaged, to put it crudely. It's just a conjecture. So what happens is this, the, pain, the guy gets his information. One part of the brain gets the information that something is painful and aversive. But the very next second, timing is very important, as Dennett pointed out. Very next second, very next in, in few milliseconds, the anterior cingulate says, no, but there's nothing here. So there's an expectation of something dangerous being built up, and a deflation of expectation, saying, don't worry, it's harmless, ha, 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 laugh. Inform your peer who share your genes, don't waste your resources, don't run to my aid. Everything is fine. Right? This explains tickling too, by the way. Right? So this menacing adult approaches the child, with his hands like this. And then he comes and then deflates it, saying, kuch, 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 kuch. Right? So there's an expectation of something terrible going to happen, there's a deflation. So you could say tickling is a form of rehearsal for adult humor. Then, of course, all kinds of, it gets embellished by society and you get all kinds of other variants in humor, the pun, the different types of humor that Dennett listed. This is an example of lesionology giving you insight into evolution of an ability that we think is largely human. Raises an interesting question about things like slapstick. Would slapstick be funny? Maybe Nick Humphrey knows the answer. So would slapstick be funny to a chimp? You can easily, with modern video technology, create an impression of a chimp walking, slipping on a banana peel portly chimp, alpha male, slipping on the banana peel, falling down, and getting up. Would this generate laughing in a chimp? Anybody here know the answer? You can take it up during discussion. <laughs> okay. Now I'm going to tell you about something quite different, an insight that came from, uh, from phantom limbs, when I was studying phantom limbs. And this comes from Rizzolatti's work on mirror neurons. Everybody here knows about mirror neurons, but for the benefit of the few who don't, I'll just recap very briefly. In the front of the brain, premotor cortex and motor cortex, there are cells which are which you call motors, motor neurons and premotors, premotor neurons. Motor command neurons in the premotor cortex send messages down the cortex to the motor cortex, orchestrating a sequence of muscle twitches going down the brainstem down to the spinal cord. And your muscles then reach out and grab a pen or push an object or pull a lever. Take a pin, grab a pin, and put it in the mouth. These are garden variety standard motor command neurons discovered by Vernon Mountcastle and his colleagues several decades ago. But about 10, 15 years ago, Giacomo Rizzolatti found that a subset of these neurons, subset of these so-called motor command neurons, will fire not only when I reach and grab a pen, but when I watch Ajit reach out and grab a pen. So these are, these are originally dubbed monkey see, monkey do neurons. So the neuron is saying, in effect, conveying information to higher centers in the brain, 
hey, the same neuron is firing as are firing as would fire if you reach out and grab the pen. When Ajit is, so Ajit is about to reach out and grab the pen. It's a mind-reading neuron. It's an intentionality neuron. It's a theory of mind neuron, right? So this neuron, these neurons, I claimed, and various others, other people have suggested this, involved, might be involved in mimesis and imitation, hence the link with Merv Donald's theory of human, human evolution and human nature. Because if you think about it, um, well, before I go there, that, that's the motor, motor mirror neurons. There are also sensory mirror neurons. If you go to the S2, secondary somatosensory cortex, majority, there's a complete map of the body surface and the surface of the brain. In S1, and then another map in S2, and other maps as well. But let's take the map in S2, right? In the map in S2, there are some cells, maybe about 5 to 10%. Most of them, there's a complete map of the body that are standard sensory neurons in the brain. But a subset of them will fire. Supposing I, somebody touches my thumb, neuron in my S2 fires in the homunculus. That same neuron will fire when somebody touches Rusty's thumb and I'm merely watching. So again, the neuron is saying, empathize with Rusty. He's being touched and he's feeling the same thing as you would feel if you were being touched. So the, the mirror neuron system is doing a virtual reality simulation of what's going on in the other person's brain. Okay, what's the relevance to psychology? First of all, let's take the sensory neurons. The question then arises, if the sensory neuron in my brain, the same thing you find in the anterior cingulate, by the way, there are mirror neurons with pain in the anterior cingulate. Right? So they respond to my pain, they also respond to somebody poking a jeep. And I almost say, ouch, and draw my hand, but I don't. I empathize with this pain. The question arises, if these neurons, pain neurons in my anterior cingulate, or touch neurons in my S2, fire when I merely watch somebody, then why don't I feel it? If Rusty is being touched, I know he's being touched, and I sort of kind of empathize with it. But I don't feel, if somebody pokes Rusty with a needle, I don't say, ouch, and pull my hand out. If the same neurons are firing, why don't I do that? One answer, one answer might be that I have regular skin receptors sending a veto or null signal back to the mirror neuron system, partially vetoing the output, saying, look, buddy, empathize with Rusty, but don't pull your hand away. That would be stupid. You're not in pain. He is in pain. Right? So the prediction from this is if you remove the arm, if you remove, then I should feel Rusty's pain. Right? And uh, 200 years that phantom limbs were known, nobody had tested this. So we had two patients, and the patient merely looking at me, the patient with the phantom right arm, looking at me, stroking my right arm, pinching my right arm. He felt it in his phantom hand, merely looking at me, stroking my intact hand. So it's a phantom rub, a phantom touch, phantom massage. This chap went home and phoned me the next day, and he said he had this phantom cramps in his phantom hand, he simply asked his wife to massage her own hand while he watched, and that relieved the pain instantly. So it's a phantom massage relieving a phantom pain. We haven't tested this in controlled clinical trials, unlike, unlike a mirror procedure, not in control, but it's just a possible therapeutic use for it. But there's nothing to do with human nature and uniqueness, so let's go there. Well, there are many, many pe people who have different favorites of what's characteristic of the Great Leap Forward. It's happened from 75,000 to 150,000 years ago. Tool use, fire, shelter, language, theory of mind. Uh, in other words, and, and more recently, culture and civilization in general. So what do mirror neurons have to do with this? Well, take a polar bear. A polar bear to evolve a fur coat must have taken 100,000, 200,000 years or more to, uh, to adapt to cold. A human child in a hominid watching its mother with, with the rich, richly connected mirror neurons in a single trial or a couple of trials, watching a mother hunt and skin a polar bear, 
will do it. In other words, evolution suddenly became Lamarckian instead of Darwinian. That's the birth of culture and civilization, that one magic step. Now you could say, well, monkeys, have, monkeys don't have civilization. One isn't saying that mirror neurons themselves are responsible, but something more sophisticated, more sophisticated mirror neuron system in humans. And again, it's not one group of cells, it's a distributed system, but functionally it is encapsulated. Mirror neuron systems have a specific function, just as the immune system is distributed all over the body, but it's a specific system, it's got specific function. So one mustn't confuse the anatomical distributed nature of a system and its functional specialization. So, so that explains culture and civilization. And I'm going to talk about a different phenomenon, <laughs> synesthesia. I've talked about the flexibility or malleability of the brain, how you can remove a person's arm and you feel somebody else's sensation. So look at the implications of this. If, if I remove my arm, I start feeling Ajit's sensations. The barrier between me and him is just skin deep. It sounds like Eastern philosophy and mumbo-jumbo. But it's true. So I call these neurons Gandhi neurons. Because they're dissolving the barrier between one mind and another mind in terms of qualia, separation of his qualia from mine. I start experiencing his qualia. So now synesthesia is an odd phenomenon uh, that until recently was not widely known, until about 10 years ago. But Darwin was into, Darwin's first cousin, Francis Galton, was interested in it. And he pointed out that certain individuals in the population, about, he, he thought one in, one in a thousand, one in a tenth, people have said one in a thousand. We find that synesthesia is very common. One in 30 people have synesthesia. So there may be a few synesthetes here who have not come out. Okay. Very common. It refers to the fact some people who are otherwise completely normal experience, when they listen to sounds, they experience colors. So F sharp may be blue, C sharp may be green so on and so forth. And some of them, they see letters of the alphabet or numbers especially, and they see numerals. Five is red, six is blue, seven is green, eight is chartreuse, nine is indigo, so on and so forth. Each number has a specific color, it's tinged with the color. And they say they literally see the color of the number, it's not something they imagine. So there have been many theories of this phenomenon. Galton pointed out it runs in families. Since then we have known also that it's eight times more common among artists, poets, and novelists, and other creative people. Why would it be more common? Interesting question. Um, so the first question is, is it real or is this mad? And they claim this. So we did a simple, first of all, people have said it's due to drug abuse. People taking LSD, for example, experience anesthesia. But that doesn't explain it completely. It is more, much more common in Berkeley than here. <laughs> but that, that sort of raises the question of why some, some drugs enhance anesthesia. So what are the brain mechanisms, what are the broader, I'm gonna to have to rush through here. Runs in families, more common in artists, poets, and novelists. So we did a simple test to show it's a real phenomenon. We designed this display. Five is red and two is green. How many of you can see the fives in a forest of twos? It's hard to do. Sort of the opposite, yeah. And the synesthete looks at it and he says, oh, I see an upside down red triangle. And he does it much faster than us normals. So if he's, if he's just crazy, how come he's better at it? So this shows he literally sees the color, the quality of the color in those numbers and this allows it to pop out. What's going on in the brain? We found that we did some brain imaging uh, with Jeff Bonington and found that the number area and the color area of the brain are adjacent to each other in the fusiform gyrus. So we suggested there may be some cross activation, some redundant wiring that has not been pruned away in early infancy. Ordinarily, there's a lot of redundancy of connections, as Rusty here knows, in the, in the infant brain, the fetal brain. 
These are pruned away by genes. There's some mutation in the pruning gene. Adjacent modules are hyper-connected. So then if the number and color areas are close together, the excess connections between them. So every time you activate a number node, a corresponding color is evoked. So you see synesthesia. So what's the big deal about this? You've shown what's going on in the brain. So who cares? Well, it turns, the answer comes from the fact that it's eight times more common among artists, poets, and novelists. The, if the gene is synesthesia gene, the pruning gene, the defective pruning gene is expressed selectively in the fusiform gyrus, then you get this quirky form of synesthesia, number color. It's expressed near the hearing centers is tone color. What is the same gene is expressed throughout the brain? You're going to get hyperconnectivity throughout the brain. Right? And you think of metaphor as linking seemingly unrelated ideas and creativity as seemingly unrelated ideas. Then you see how an increased connectivity in the brain is going to create an increased propensity to link seemingly unrelated ideas, the basis of creativity and metaphor. Hence, the hidden agenda of the gene, like the sickle, sickle cell anemia gene, hence the eight times higher proportion of synesthesia gene among artists, poets, and novelists. So that's the rationale for why one in 30 people has this, apparently. Last thing I wanted to say is, I do want to show you this fun thing, by the way. Uh, this is just for fun. Nick Humphrey would like this because he studied blind sight. Um, can anybody read this? How many of you can read it? About five of you. The rest of you can't read it. Synesthetes read it immediately. They say, oh, I see some colors. It's red and it's blue and it's green and yellow, but why am I seeing colors? There's no letters there. There's no numbers there. Why am I seeing colors? And then you show them. Squint your eyes. Can, you, can everybody read it now? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Now, the astonishing thing is, synesthetes see this much better than us. Because what's happening is, those graphemes there are evoking cross-activation in the color area even before conscious recognition of the grapheme. And that's cueing them as to what the, number, what the letters are. Whereas you can only do it if I remove the sharp edges. Now, this got me thinking about, synesthesia got me thinking about intersensory interaction in general. That's pathological interaction between the senses, synesthesia. What about inter interaction in general in all of us normal people? Not normal, non-synesthetes. Okay, here's a Martian alphabet. A is A, if I draw A, and B is B, C is C. Each shape has a particular sound. Now here's Martian alphabet. One of these is Kiki and the other is Booba. How many of you think this is Kiki and that is Booba? Raise your hands. There's only one person who's a mutant. <laughs> How many of you think this is Booba and that is Kiki? Raise your hand. Everybody else. You haven't learned Martian, you don't know anything about it. How come you did this? It's because the brain is saying the sudden inflection of that jagged shape chuk, 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 mimics the inflection of the sound, key, key. Mimics the inflection of the tongue on the palate, key, pulling back, pee. Whereas the booba sound, booba, mimics the tongue undulating on the palate and the visual impression of the amoeboid shape. Right? Now, this may sound like a silly little demonstration. It was actually created by Heinz Werner, Gestalt psychologist. Not for this purpose, but he invented it. But it's very important because it's telling you about a process that we humans excel at called intrasensory abstraction. There's nothing in common between hair cells being excited sequentially and the shape there on the jagged shape, which is photons being emitted from the retina and hitting the retina in parallel. The pattern of neural activity in the visual cortex has nothing in common pattern of activity in the auditory cortex, sequential activation of hair cells. The only property they have in common is the abstract property of kikiness, jaggedness. And the brain is able to extract this, and is doing it, I claim, in this inferior parallel lobule. 
Patients leaves the inferior paralobule are abysmal at Bubakiki. They're a chance level. I've seen several patients. There. So this process of abstraction, we excel at. And not coincidentally, perhaps, is this process of abstraction, especially good in humans are especially good at it. And this structure became several times bigger in humans, and especially in the left hemisphere, than in lower primates. It's an accelerated development of the size of the left inferior parietal lobule in humans. So something interesting going on there, but reaching out and grabbing trees, combining motor signals with sensory signals for mirror neuron activation, combining visual, uh, motor, tactile, and everything else, abstract, con conducting an abstraction, intermodal abstraction. And finally, if you destroy the left inferior parietal lobule, these patients also become terrible at metaphor. If you tell the guy, it is, all that glitters is not gold, what does that mean? Ajit, what does that mean? All that glitters is not gold. It just means you don't go with surface appearances. So I asked this guy, what all that glitters is not gold, what does that mean? He says, oh, well, it means that if it's shiny and yellow, it doesn't mean it's gold. It could be copper, or it could be an alloy. And the only way to find out is to go and get its specific gravity. He's not stupid, he knows about specific gravity, he knows everything, but he doesn't get it. Right? He doesn't get it. And then, uh, then, you know, by the way, I've tried this on normal people, one out of 20 normal people don't get it. So there may be a metaphor blindness in normal people. That's, that concludes it, thank you. <laughs>